0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For the first time in more than a decade, the soil's being tested at the former Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant. The result could mean more trails in the much debated open space. Then, a frustrated Colorado Parks and Wildlife has a message about helping fawns, feeding goats, or approaching
1: moose. Keep them wild, view them in their natural state. Don't try to alter their behavior.
0: Plus, we know about the Apollo landing on the moon 50 years ago. But what happened afterward? And what did it take to get back to Earth?
1: The first
2: thing that uh, Neil did was to collect a, uh, basically, sample in case they had to scramble and get back in the spacecraft so they could say they had a piece of the moon.
0: Reflections with the man at the helm of mission control. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. For the first time in 13 years, the soil's being tested at Rocky Flats. The former nuclear weapons plant is now a wildlife refuge, except for the 1,000 acres where the buildings used to be. That's still closed to the public. Now more trails running through the refuge are in the works. They would connect the existing trails across counties for the Rocky Mountain Greenway. The EPA maintains that the area is safe, but a partnership of several cities wants to independently verify the soil is not contaminated with plutonium and uranium. Andrew Valdez is the open space planner for Jefferson County and is heading up the Rocky Mountain Greenway project. Hi, Andrew.
3: Good to be with you, Avery.
0: Tell me more about the Rocky Mountain Greenway project that's led to this testing.
3: Sure. So the project itself was actually the brainchild of of our governor Hickenlooper and uh, then Secretary Salazar, and the vision was to connect the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, which is out by the airport, with Rocky Mountain National Park up in uh, Estes area. And uh, so far, we've we've gotten all the way up to uh, north of Stanley Lake, and the project that I'm working on specifically is to connect the the. The um, trail to the refuge and then north into Boulder County.
0: And tell me about how the testing itself came to be.
3: Sure. So um, the the partnership of, uh, of of jurisdictions that put together a grant um, were were given the go ahead to pursue the grant with the caveat that we would do additional soil sa- sampling.
0: And the cities involved in this are Boulder, Broomfield, Westminster, and Arvada.
3: Uh, correct. And so, also Boulder County. So before and, Je- and Jefferson County.
0: Oh, thank you. And so before any new trails can be created, these tests have to be completed and the results must be what?
3: Well, we're going to present the results along with the public health discussion uh, to the public. And um, it's, it's important to, to underscore here that, you know, from the federal perspective, this is a, this is a matter that's sort of been, been already adjudicated. But we've decided to go above and beyond to do this additional uh, com- confirmatory analysis.
0: And what are you hoping to find?
3: Uh, well I think at this point it's it's really about seeing what the data tells us not to be predecisional and and keeping an open mind here um, at the end of the day it's up to the elected boards and councils of the uh, partnership what, how we are going to proceed with the project
0: and is there a specific level that needs to be met?
3: well um, it's it's a little more complicated than that. There is a level that would trigger remedial action by the uh, Department of Energy, but uh, those levels haven't ever been seen post cleanup.
0: And the levels, if they don't meet that requirement set by the cities, would the project be abandoned?
3: Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, but again, it's you know, it's it's going to be. I, I think the other thing. It's important to remember is that the refuge is actually already open to the public. It's been open all summer and there's been thousands of visitors already. Uh, so, so all of this is happening in the context of, of, of that.
0: So this is already a pretty highly utilized area. Correct. So let's talk about the scope of the testing. How deep are you digging for the soil and how many different places within the refuge are you testing?
3: So that's a, a, a great question. You know, we've we've really uh, we've developed a sampling and analysis plan with a lot of uh, robust uh, public input, and uh, and a transparent process. We uh, we hired an independent third party contractor to uh, develop uh, a draft sampling and analysis plan. We had a sixty day public comment period, in which we collected three hundred and fifty uh, comments. We held two public open houses. And we're doing a sampling uh, uh, protocol that's actually of a higher density and frequency and depth than has ever been done before. So um, we're sampling surface and subsurface soils, and we're even sharing split samples with uh, a member of the the activist community. Um, And we will be sharing uh, results and data with, with each other and also with the public.
0: And as you're sampling, what are you looking for in the soil?
3: We have three contaminants of concern: uh, it's plutonium, americium, and uranium, and some related isotopes.
0: I understand that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, which manages the Rocky Flats Refuge, is also conducting to conducting its own separate tests.
3: That's correct. Uh, so the Fish and Wildlife Service borrowed the the methodology that we developed and has also agreed to sample within the refuge along the Rocky Mountain Greenway where new construction is going to take place. And while these are two separate projects, the idea is to look at the data holistically and present it to the public as, as one data set.
0: We spoke with Kristen Iverson about the soil testing. She wrote the book Full Body Burden, Growing Up with the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats, and she's long fought against opening Rocky Flats to the public.
4: There has not been adequate studying and sampling. And even with this new test that's going on now, that's uh, certainly, as I said, very welcome. Nonetheless, they're taking a limited number of samples from a limited number of spots. It's the first testing that's been done in 13 years. And and we've had a lot happen in those 13 years. The, The rapid development and also the flood that happened there in 2013, a number of other things. And there's just a lot of information you know, that that we don't know.
0: How do you respond to those like Iverson who have concerns about te- that the testing doesn't go far enough and that it may not reveal potential health hazards at the site?
3: I, I do understand the concerns and, and I would like to, to thank Ms. Iverson and the rest of the, the activist group for really holding a, a, a good faith discussion about this in the in the public forum. Um You know, as I stated before, we're we're, doing—we're—we're really going above and beyond in this effort uh, with with this with this new sampling regime, and on a certain level, it's all extra credit anyway because the refuge is open.
0: And it sounded like you said some of the sampling involves the activist community.
3: Uh, That's correct. So we're sharing split samples with a uh, a geochemist. His name is uh, Michael Ketterer. And uh, we've had a, a really productive discussion It came out of this public process that we've developed. And uh, he's going to be doing his own sampling and analysis, and we will be uh, sharing notes and, and also um, presenting that data to the public and to the elected officials in the, uh, in the FLAT partnership.
0: And what else have you heard from the public about these plans?
3: Well, in general, we've, we've, it's been very well received. Um, as I said, we, we received about 350 comments on the project. Um, the overwhelming majority were in support of, of the project. And as Jefferson County open space, uh, you know, we, we hear two things from the public more than anything else, buy more land and build more trails. This is a really a great opportunity to leverage a tremendous resource that's right in our backyard to take a little bit of the pressure off of our, of our system.
0: And if the results show that the levels are safe, when would construction begin on the trail project?
3: Uh, Design would begin early next year and probably start uh, construction late, late next year in the construction season.
0: Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Avery. Andrew Valdez is an open space planner for Jefferson County. The county is overseeing soil testing at the site of the former Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant. It's the first soil testing in more than a decade. People have a lot of good intentions when it comes to wildlife, but when people are trying to help a wild animal, they often end up doing more harm than good. Sometimes the interaction erodes the animal's natural fear of humans. Other times, it puts the animal's life at risk directly. Cody Wigner is a Colorado Parks and Wildlife officer based in Colorado Springs. Cody, welcome to the program.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Colorado Parks and Wildlife urged the public on Twitter this month not to disturb fawns that seem to be abandoned. Why shouldn't people help?
1: Yeah, a lot of times um, people see, um, whether it's a fawn or birds, um, you know, just like I said, pretty much all species, a baby animal um, left somewhere, but deer fawns are very common. And they don't realize that that's their natural defense, is to lay there and be um, pretty camouflaged and scentless. Uh, And the mom, the doe, will leave them for for up to 12 hours easily, uh, just completely alone. And she'll come back for 15, 20 minutes once every 12 hours or so just to feed them and then bed them back down and uh, leave them there for another 12 hours.
0: And tell me about some of these calls that you've responded to. How have you seen people try to help fawns without a mother around?
1: Yeah, we've seen everything from people um, doing the right thing, which is getting a hold of us, calling one of our offices and getting direction from there to people just showing up at our office carrying the baby animals, you know, baby deer into our office. And in extreme cases, people taking those animals home to their own home and trying to rehabilitate them themselves, which is not only illegal, but also very, very bad for that animal.
0: If a person has taken the fawn home or brought it to you, now it is essentially orphaned, it's not being taken care of by its mother, what's the likely outcome?
1: Yeah, so it depends. If it's a short enough time period, When we discover that it was taken, uh, if there's not a confirmed dead doe out there, we know the mother is dead and it truly is orphaned. A lot of times what we can do is just go return it to that same location, and um, mom and baby will reunite. Um, If that's not the case, where it's been too long, or if we know the doe is dead and the fawn is truly orphaned, um, what we do is use a network of volunteers um, and staff to get them transported to licensed rehabilitators.
0: Let's talk about other wildlife people might encounter this time of year. Bears are out and about. A couple of months ago, a bear bit a hiker in Aspen, and that bear was euthanized. Colorado Parks and Wildlife killed another aggressive bear in Boulder. What should people be doing to minimize their interaction with bears?
1: Yeah, with bears, um, if you're out recreating, um, you know, if you're overnight camping, Big thing is securing that food um, as much as possible. So using bear cans, to, uh, an airtight canister, make sure that's outside of your tent and away from it, or get it up in the tree. I always say 10 feet up and 10 feet out is best. So that's any food or food trash. And also make sure you don't have any food or trash wrappers anything like that inside your tents where you're sleeping. And then uh, kind of more the urban areas or um, kind of suburban areas, big thing is securing your trash, making sure that that trash is either in a bear-resistant trash container or inside a garage or secure shed until the morning of pickup. And
0: what about bird feeders?
1: Yeah, bird food, um, really, you know, seeds is kind of a natural food source for bears. Um, however, it's unnatural when humans place it out there in large quantities in those, uh, in those bird feeders. Uh, one bird feeder can hold, uh, hold tens of thousands of calories, which is what the bears are after to pack on all that weight for the winter. So they really don't know any difference, and those are huge attractants. So really the birds don't need it in these summer months. So if you do want to feed birds, I always tell people between Thanksgiving and kind of April time frame. So don't feed any sooner than late November, and then make sure all those bird feeders are down come April. And
0: just recently, I saw a moose along the side of the road near Idaho Springs, and a number of people were approaching it to take pictures. Is that good moose etiquette?
1: That is not good moose etiquette. Um, the moose, believe it or not, can be a dangerous animal. Um, I mean, they're very big and they know it. They're not very afraid of, of much of anything. So, and the moose population in Colorado has, has grown substantially since our reintroduction efforts. And yeah, they, they really can be dangerous. So, uh, with any wildlife, it's important to make sure you're keeping that distance.
0: This month, Colorado Parks and Wildlife posted a warning that mountain goats and bighorn sheep on Mount Evans are behaving in an unusual way. What are they doing?
1: Yeah, so really what has happened is those mountain goats have become very habituated to people. You know, Mount Evans Highway, that gets a lot of traffic. And unfortunately, um, they learned some bad behavior from people providing food to them. And that just does not end well for those animals. And it's, it's really an accident waiting to happen um, on the, possibly an attack from an animal, one of those goats on a human, if they, if, if they uh, get too comfortable around them. So it can be harmful
0: for people. Is it also a risk for the goats, too?
1: Yeah, it's a, a definitely a big risk for the goats. You know, a while back, it sounds like we lost pretty much an entire age class of animals up there. And doing necropsies on them, it looks like there was high, high levels of E. coli in their system. You know, so really just the, those human-based foods um, can have a lot of negative impacts on them. They're not, their digestive systems are not set up to, uh, to digest those the foods we eat.
0: Now, these goats and sheep, they associate people with food. How is Parks and Wildlife discouraging them from being so social?
1: Those animals are smart, but I always say people are a lot smarter. So we need to make sure we're doing our part to keep those animals safe and wild. But what we're doing as an agency is is trying to to keep that natural fear of humans in those animals by going up there and doing some continual hazing to try to make them less comfortable around the roadways and up at the summit. And
0: what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so, so hazing could be, um, you know, anything from just simply yelling and uh, just kind of chasing it off. Um, it could be whether it's throwing rocks, rattle cans, which would be just like a can filled with, um, with some rocks, tossing that at them. Um, it could go all the way up to, to using rubber bullets. Um, so, you know, it's really not going to hurt them. It's just a little bit of a sting um, just to to let them know that people aren't good.
0: So essentially just using these methods in, in an effort to keep them safe in the end.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's for their safety and the and the public safety.
0: Have you noticed an uptick in other wildlife calls recently?
1: Um, just in general, I'd say a lot of just kind of general sightings. Um one thing that a lot of people have that's kind of newer technology is these kind of wireless cameras, um, surveillance cameras on their homes. So it just seems like to me in general, we're seeing more mountain lion sightings, um, which I think is kind of just more more eyes out there, if you will, with those cameras.
0: And any words of advice to people who are seeing
1: mountain lions? Um, With mountain lions, the big thing is um, if they're on your property and you really don't want them there, is to kind of get rid of that habitat. So I always tell people, make sure you're clearing that brush, um, brush or shrubs, anything on your property, at least three feet off the ground. Um, since they are kind of ambush predators, uh, you know, they like to, to kind of sneak and hide. They like a lot of cover. So if you take away that habitat and good cover, um, they're they're a lot less likely to utilize your yard. Makes your
0: yard a little bit less inviting. yeah. When all is said and done, what is the one thing you want people to remember when it comes to Colorado's wildlife?
1: Uh, The one thing for Colorado's wildlife is keep them wild. You know, let them view them in their natural state. Don't try to alter their behavior. So ways to do that is make sure you're keeping very far distance from them. Use your lenses, you know, the telescopic lenses or digital zoom on a camera. Make sure you're using that to get better pictures and uh, making sure you're not changing their behavior at all when you're viewing them or trying to enjoy them.
0: Cody, thank you so
1: much. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Cody Wigner is an officer with Colorado Parks and Wildlife based in Colorado Springs. The tiny town of Nucla learned officially this week that its power plant will close early next year, sooner than expected. Another economic blow for a community that's had its share. But it's also a beloved place that's drawn generations of people looking for a different kind of life. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg takes us to Nucla to learn the history of this rural corner of Montrose County.
4: First, 89-year-old Marie Templeton would like to bust a misconception you may have. Even though her town was once a well-known hub for uranium mining, its name has nothing to do with nuclear energy. Nucle was founded to be... The
5: nucleus of this socialist bunch of people.
4: That idealist bunch was the Colorado Cooperative Company, a utopian society that sprang out of an economic depression known as the Panic of 1893. It offered people the promise of a life where everyone got the same fair shake and did the same hard work in a place far from everything they'd known. Persistent (laughs) is the best word I can think of. They had to be, says Templeton, a historian with the Rimrocker Historical Society. Together, they dug a 17 mile irrigation ditch. It took 10 years. In its early days, the town had a reputation for hard work, but also for music and art. Only a few years later, the collective broke up over fights of how equally the work was really shared. After the discovery of radium in 1912, Templeton says many residents transferred their can-do spirit from farming to mining. We're
5: going to do it, and we're going to do it. And that's it.
4: By the time Templeton and her family moved to the area at the start of World War II, it was well on its way to becoming an important part of America's march toward atomic weapons. And that meant jobs for locals. And these guys had been
5: living poor all their life, and they finally had a good way to support their families. And so they worked in the uranium
4: mines. With a few hiccups over the years, Nucleus boom times would last through the 70s a radioactive gold rush.
1: I personally knew,
2: you know, some guys walking around in bib overalls that were millionaires.
4: Sitting on a park bench, Jerry Nelson, now 60, remembers the promise of this place. Uranium mining brought so much life here. Always a baseball game or a dance to go to, a regular movie theater, and the uranium drive-in.
2: You know, on a Saturday night when I was in school, it was bumper-to-bumper on Main. It was wild.
4: But those wild times in nuclear came to an end with a disaster 2,000 miles away. The partial meltdown and radiation leak at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in 1979. Uranium prices plunged and Nucla's mine closed. Hank Nelson, Jerry's cousin, says it was a loss some here never accepted.
1: And my granddad, clear up until his dying days, was waiting for the price of uranium to go up so he could get back to mining. (laughs) Grandpa, you're tethered to an oxygen tank. You're 77 years old. That's all right. I'll be ready.
4: That fondness for uranium is common here. Chunks of it used to fall off trucks all the time, says Marie Templeton. She remembers showing a few of her husband's family members around.
5: So I saw a little piece of yellow about as big as my finger. On the ground when we were walking around, I just picked it up and said, there's a piece of uranium that woman almost fainted. Ah, don't get
4: it close to me. <laughs> Templeton sees the element with more nostalgia than fear, even though her husband and father both died of cancer after working in the mines.
5: They all knew that there was a, a risk, but they were supporting their families. They were making good money.
4: The kind of money no one's seen around here in years. Nucleus probably most famous now for requiring heads of households to own a gun. The policy isn't enforced, but it shows the town hasn't lost its taste for unconventional politics. Now, as it faces the loss of its power plant and the coal mine that supplied it, Templeton has no doubts Nucla will survive, thanks to the same type of dedicated, hardy folks who founded it.
5: History repeats itself. I do know that.
4: <laughs> Don't you? Outside her window, her sprinklers are going, using water that still comes from the ditch built by the Colorado Cooperative Company more than a century ago. In Nucla, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: The plan to close the coal plant two years early in Nucla is just one of the announcements this week by Colorado power company Tri-State Generation. It also announced plans to switch over to more renewable energy. The power company has been under fire from some buyers to allow more renewables. CPR Energy reporter Grace Hood speaks with my colleague Joanne Allen about what to expect.
6: Grace, most customers, if they look at their electricity bills, they are not going to
7: see the name Tri-State. Who does it actually provide energy to? Tri-State sells energy to about 18 rural Colorado utilities that then sell that electricity to local customers. So uh, the number of people who rely on Tri-State energy is about 1.3 million people, and that's across four states. And those states are Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and New Mexico. Well,
6: how will people who live in these areas be affected?
7: Tri-State hopes that it's actually gonna lower their electricity bills because the cost of wind and solar is dropping. That's potentially good news for them. Rising bills have really been a challenge for some local utilities. One of the names that comes to mind is Delta Montrose Electric. And that utility really saw member rates go up more than 50% over the last 15 years on average. That's what they've reported. And This rural member was so frustrated with Tri-State that it's currently seeking to end its contract. And that's being finalized right now.
6: Tri-State is one of the biggest energy suppliers in Colorado. Where does it rank in terms of how much renewable energy it uses?
7: It's about a third of their power mix right now. By way of contrast, uh, Excel Energy has made a 100 percent carbon-free commitment. You know, in recent years, I think Tri-State has definitely commissioned more renewable energy, but it was also really under pressure by both members and states to do more renewable energy. So I think to a certain extent, this announcement that we're talking about today, Joanne, I think Tri-State's really seeing the writing on the wall. And both Colorado and New Mexico passed very aggressive goals this year to reduce carbon dioxide. Well, Grace, you mentioned the rural utilities
6: that Tri-State sells to. They've had a rocky relationship with some of them. Does this plan address their concerns?
7: You know, I mentioned Delta Montrose earlier, and that real utility is still moving ahead with their plans to part ways with Tri-State. But, you know, it's interesting. I spoke to other utilities that buy electricity from Tri-State. Their names are United Power and La Plata Electric Association. And I asked both of them, like, hey, you know, this announcement, is it just lip service or does it actually mean something? And they both said that it is meaningful, and they think it's going to result in real action.
6: Well, how will this plan change the path that Tri-State is already on?
7: Well, I guess the short answer is we don't exactly know. When I spoke with Tri-State's spokesperson, they wouldn't say whether Tri-State is going to do something on the level of Excel Energy's 100% carbon-free plan by 2050. At the same time, we know that state regulators are really going to be looking closely at what tri-state's doing and uh, calculating whether it's enough to meet new state rules that address climate change. So that plan will fall under that uh, climate change rule. And I think there's just a lot of details that have to be decided over the next couple of months.
0: CPR Energy and Environment reporter Grace Hood speaking with my colleague Joanne Allen about efforts by Tri-State to include more renewable energy. Tri-State serves 1.3 million rural customers across Colorado and the West. When Colorado Matters continues, what did it take to get back to Earth after the historic Apollo moon landing 50 years ago? I'm Avery Lill, and you're with CPR News. A lot of folks out there
8: question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis.
9: Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential?
8: This guy is here to tell you that it can happen and it does happen.
9: I mean, it's, it, it, it obviously does.
8: On the latest episode of On Something, cannabis addiction.
9: Addiction is addiction and stuff can ruin your life.
7: Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.
10: And I'm Ryan Warner. The other day, I placed a call to a man who was instrumental in mankind's giant leap to the moon. Krantz here. Hi, Gene Krantz. I feel like I'm talking to a rock star.
2: You don't have a rock star. I don't. I can't sing. I can't dance. (laughs) And basically, I'm too damn
10: old. Gene Kranz is the former fighter pilot who served as flight director for Apollo 11 and later missions. He took part in this week's Apollo Palooza events at the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver. Now, stories about the first man on the moon 50 years ago usually are about the lead-up to these words.
9: That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
10: But we wanted Gene Krantz to focus on what happened in the hours after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon and their 200,000-mile journey home. I asked Krantz what the astronauts did immediately following Neil Armstrong's famous first step onto the lunar surface.
2: The first thing that Neil did was to collect a uh, basically sample in case they had to scramble and get back in the spacecraft so they could say they had a piece of the moon. But basically, the initial work was done with uh, Neil was testing surface, doing all that kind of stuff, and this was all being relayed to Houston. We could uh, pretty much watch them on TV now.
10: You know, Gene, there's audio from Mission Control that day after the Eagle has landed. Uh, Obvious jubilation in the room, and you say something like, keep the chatter down. Um, Tell us about the atmosphere in Mission Control after the landing, and kind well, of ba- balancing your glee against the fact that there was still a lot more to do.
2: This was one of the things that was uh, very irritating to me. You know, all through our training, we had never had a viewing room full of people that uh, would erupt in cheers and clapping and noise back there uh, when we had landed. And we had double glass walls between the viewing room and mission control. But you could hear the, the jubilation. I just had to keep my controllers on track. I got sort of mad. I had a pencil in my hand. I slammed it down to get back on track. I broke the pencil. I said, okay, settle down, you guys. Stand by for T-1. And basically our job was to babysit that spacecraft and make sure it's uh, safe to stay there for the duration that they're going to be in the moon. We monitored it for two hours before we could give the crew a uh, safer T-3 and they could power down the spacecraft and we could uh, get on and start joining in the uh, celebration with the rest of the world. Uh, Can you explain T-1, T-3? Yeah, these are times. There were three times once we landed. T-1 was the first time it occurred two minutes after landing. T-2 was the second time eight minutes after landing. And T-3 was the final stay-no-stay decision. And these were times when you could lift off from the lunar surface. And basically, the lunar module could perform an active rendezvous with the command module. It didn't require a rescue capability. That is, these were
10: uh, moments of escape if you needed to abort or earlier than planned.
2: Uh, yes, that was if we saw a problem when we were on the surface, we could execute a liftoff at these precise times. And
10: how long did they wind up spending on the lunar surface total?
2: Good Lord, I think it was about 24 hours. I don't know the exact time because I knew that once we had finished the EVA, we wanted them to sort of power down, get some chow, and then uh, take a nap. And then we had to go through the... Uh, procedures to uh, launch them off the uh, surface again.
10: Uh, EVA, extra vehicular activity, what you do outside. And they had to have some chow. So uh, there was obviously uh, food with them there on the surface.
2: Oh, yeah, certainly. It's sort of like a uh, quickie lunch, you know, like the uh, military has. Did they sleep on the moon? They were supposed to. I don't really remember. I'm sure they did. They were pretty doggone tired by the time they uh, finished EVA. That's very strenuous. You know, you're working against the suit all the time. The suit, when it's inflated, is in a neutral position where you got to work to move your arms out, you got to work to move your arms in. I uh, tried on some of the uh, shuttle suits, and I found this requires a bit of, uh, what I'd say, coordination, but you adapt to it real quick. Oh, but it requires
10: some rest afterwards. Um, were there risks associated with Armstrong and Aldrin actually walking on the moon? It sounds like you at least planned for the idea that I s- something might go wrong?
2: Well, there's always a risk of uh, crew in a suit, you know, outside the spacecraft. The first risk you worry about is uh, something that penetrates a suit and basically allows them to lose in suit pressure and they go to vacuum. But the suits are pretty well designed. They were tested very well. The principal concern I had, uh, not uh, for that EVA, but another one, is occasionally one of them would stumble and they'd jump too high or something because they're in one-sixth gravity. So they have to. Instead of walking along, they sort of hop along, and uh, that takes a bit of the learning before they uh, they finally are adept at it.
10: And if you do it wrong, what are the risks?
2: Well, you're going to tend to fall in your face. In fact, we've seen several of them fall. But the risks are are well controlled. I think the greatest risk the crew faces is depletion of the resources in the fuel, which is the oxygen in the, in the suit. Pressurization problems right on down the line. But if they have a problem with that, they just hurry back, get back in the lunar module and repressurize that. And that's all there is to it.
10: Was there a plan if somehow they did run out of resources, fuel, or, or they got stuck on the moon?
2: Well, we didn't talk about that much because we were, uh, we were very comfortable in the design of the lunar module. You know, a lot of people ask this question, what happens if we get stuck in the moon? That would require a serious failures. We had all kinds of workarounds for engine start and all that kind of stuff. The design is very, very simple. And uh, that was not uh, something that we worried about. But basically, our job is to look over the systems, and we we're confident in the technology that was used to build the ascent stage.
10: Uh, then there was the challenge of reconnecting to the command module, because Michael Collins at this time was orbiting the moon. Uh, What had to happen to reconnect them?
2: What they had to do is they had to get off the surface. They have to get into a rendezvous path. Uh, This mission here, everything was going great. It was just the uh, issue of getting properly aligned with the docking target and making the docking and then initiating crew transfer. So
10: once they were returning to Earth, they land in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And did that go as planned?
2: Yeah, it was the only, the only thing that was uh, unusual about the reentry was that there was a storm in the landing area, so we had to basically stretch the glide, basically the, the reentry process. And that was a procedure that we had in our hip pocket. We knew it was going to, we were going to use it and uh, they executed perfectly.
10: Uh, Neil Armstrong was the first to actually step onto the moon, and uh, I've just watched a documentary, a new one, about his life and how dramatically it changed when he returned to Earth. Uh, Gene Kranz, how much did your life change after Apollo 11?
2: My life didn't change much at all after Apollo 11. This is the job that we're trained to do, and we did it. So basically, I had to make sure that we got back on track and prepared for the Apollo 12 mission, and then after that was done the Apollo 13, where I was going to be lead flight director again. this was the business that we we're in we we're in the business of continuing the exploration
10: of course, Apollo 13 would present all sorts of challenges uh, that you navigated beautifully, as was depicted in the movie Apollo 13. Are you excited at the prospect of a return to the moon as a uh, kind of training ground for Mars. This is what the Trump administration hopes well, for. Well, I
2: salute and support the president in this moon 2024. I think the real challenge is, uh, I think you can build the spacecraft and get the equipment ready to go. It's really a challenge building the team. And with uh, proper leadership, I think that can execute also. So yes, I am uh, excited. I'm. I would like to see it happen. Maybe I might live enough to see it happen, but at least my kids would see it. And what I'm interested in is the future of this nation and our work in space and how we can contribute to maintaining and continuing to maintain the position in the high ground that we established in the early years.
10: Eventually to Mars, then, you'd hope?
2: Well, I think the moon is the stepping stone to Mars. And I think someday they will move out and decide that's where we want to go. But I think the key thing is we, uh, we this is an incredibly expensive process. And what we have to do is we have to rally the free nations of the world and pull them together and build them as a team.
10: Gene Krantz, I want to leave with this. You were known for vests that you wore to the various missions you led. I understand that your wife made them. Could you describe the vest that you wore for the Apollo 11 mission?
2: Apollo 11 mission vest was, uh, well, I actually wore uh, two of them. Each vest had a white background because that was my team color. Okay. Each one of the vests had a different pattern and different fabric. And uh, I think this was a really, it really turned into be a real morale builder for the team. And this this would be for you
10: and the team? She would make quite a few of these.
2: Oh, yes. And uh, some of them went to Girl Scout Raffles because we got six kids, five girls, so they go to Raffles to raise money. There's one at the Smithsonian. There's another one at the Space Center Houston. The Space Center Houston one is... One of my favorites, because it was a red, white, and blue metallic material, which was very difficult to sew and build. But it was funny when They, they needed one out in Hollywood, and we had to give it insured. And it was appraised at $15,000 a vest. I actually sold one of the remaining vests for our church building fund, and it uh, helped us get uh, that building fund started. So they all went to good causes.
10: Uh, Gene, thanks very much for being with us.
2: And thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
0: Ryan Warner speaking with Gene Krantz. Krantz was lead flight director for Apollo 11. It was the first time humans walked on the moon, and it took place 50 years ago. Krantz was in Denver this week for Apollo Palooza at the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. certified American sign language interpreters are scarce across the state. That shortage is especially acute outside the front range. That's why the state is piloting the Rural Interpreting Services Project. The idea is to increase access to interpreters where people need assistance but are often overlooked. Timothy Chevalier and Trish Lakey are with the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and DeafBlind. We spoke in April. Trish is deaf and she talked with me through an ASL interpreter. Trish, can you start by telling me about the kinds of situations ASL interpreters are present for? Truthfully, any number of situations. Most
8: frequently, we receive requests that are medically related. We also get appointments for mental health services, meetings. They might be between one person and another, just communicating with one another, but also for events. Legal situations are also critical. It may be a meeting with an attorney... Or it could be an interview with someone in law enforcement. So any number of situations.
0: And can you give me a sense of how severe the shortage is outside of the front range? How many people are interpreting and living in rural Colorado? Well,
8: one example I might give is in Grand Junction. And that is a pretty significant community in our state. We believe there is about 60 deaf people living in that area that use American Sign Language. And there is one certified interpreter that is available to work full-time. And there is another interpreter that can be available on a part-time basis. But for 60 deaf people in that community, in considering all the number of situations which might arise for needing an interpreter, having one person available to provide interpreting is a challenge.
0: If there aren't interpreters in a community, how are people who are deaf coping?
8: It is really interesting for me on a personal level that having been born deaf, I grew up in Indiana. And back in that time, it was prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So those protections were not in place. We often relied on friends or family members to do interpreting. And times have changed. we do have a professional level and certified level of interpreters, which certainly is much better. But I am noticing that people within the rural areas, their life experiences, very similar to what I experienced all those years ago growing up, that you look for whoever might be available. Maybe it's someone who took sign language, and they took sign language class maybe some time ago. But that might be who's available. Or maybe there's an interpreter who's working in the public schools that they might ask to come and interpret for them when they're not trained to do interpreting in a medical environment, for example. But they're the most available person and you do with what you've got. That is a totally different world than what we experience on the Front Range. They
0: experience so many more barriers. And we're talking about interpreters who have been tested and certified by the Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf. That's really important. Timothy, you're the commission's outreach coordinator. For somebody who's never had to communicate through an interpreter, can you give an example of why it might matter that a person interpreting is certified and not just fluent in a language?
9: We've had several Examples: One, for example, an interpreter in a medical setting, uh, not certified, had interpreted for an individual that they were HIV positive, and interpreted positive in a way to mean something positive.
0: Positive as in good, like they don't have HIV.
9: Exactly. That individual went home for several months, came back to the doctor afterwards, and said, "Uh, "You know, I'm I'm feeling worse. I'm not feeling better." And so that's one example of the injustice that can be uh, that can occur when a non certified interpreter is providing the service, and thus the state law is designed to protect deaf individuals from those types of incidents
0: and what about in situations outside of medicine? Can it also have an effect when people are talking to police or in the courtroom?
9: Oh, yes, absolutely. An example would be of a deaf woman that was sexually assaulted when law enforcement came, the person that was most readily available was her daughter. And the daughter was pulled into the situation as an interpreter, facilitating communication between law enforcement and her mother. Needless to say, the situation was awkward for her mother and her mother didn't necessarily share all of the details. And when it came time to go to the station to give her a story to law enforcement about what occurred, The story uh, had more details, and as a result, it appeared to law enforcement that her story had changed. But as you can understand, the story had more information when she had an impartial, professional, qualified interpreter there that she felt that she could uh, elaborate further without feeling embarrassed.
0: Mm, That sounds very difficult. Trish, how does the skill of the interpreter change your interactions with hearing people?
8: Uh, it makes such a huge difference. Some interpreters are just so skilled at being able to match exactly what I'm saying and express fully what I am saying and interpret it accurately. They know how to express what I'm saying from one language to the other in an appropriate tone and manner. An interpreter who's less experienced or not professional or not certified often will misunderstand or express what I'm saying in a more basic manner. And it certainly makes the deaf person look like they are not understanding or
0: they're unintelligent
8: or, you know, less educated.
0: And I can only imagine how frustrating that would be. (laughs) Definitely. And now turning to your program, the Americans with Disabilities Act requires effective communication for individuals who are deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf blind. So the state has actually set aside $1.4 million for this year and next year for a Rural Interpreting Services project. Trish, what is this program doing to increase access to sign language interpreters in rural areas? The RISC program has three parts. The
8: first part focuses on providing interpreting services. And that is at no charge to the local people in the area. Then we also are providing training as the second aspect. And we have five different training opportunities that we are providing in order to grow the number of interpreters statewide, particularly in the rural areas. The other part has to do with outreach. We have been traveling throughout the state and hosting town hall meetings to let people know about the Rural Interpreting Services Project and how access can be provided.
0: What are you hearing from people who are attending those meetings about how they're dealing with the shortage of interpreters?
8: We hear that they don't even know where to find or locate interpreters. Uh, If there isn't um, an interpreter available in our community, where do we go for an interpreter? If they find an interpreter available on the Front Range, they're confronted with the reality that weather may impede the interpreter um, even traveling across the mountains, so they can't even get to the community on time, so even the time of year has implications for them. Likewise, the added expense when travel time is added as well as mileage for the interpreter to do that travel, which increases the overall cost,
0: which is a challenge in rural areas. And Timothy, Trish mentioned it can be hard for people to get access to an interpreter if, say, weather is bad. Can you give me other examples of everyday barriers people face?
9: Well, oftentimes services simply are not provided and it becomes a problem when it's a call to the sheriff's office, or even a municipal court may not be able to provide an interpreter for a courtroom appearance. Um, We've had even domestic violence agencies addressing that concern in rural areas. And so it does become problematic when there's an urgent situation that cannot be adequately addressed with effective communication. And that hurts both parties. That hurts the sheriff, let's say, trying to investigate the situation, and that hurts the victim. And so it goes both ways.
0: And that seems like an important piece of this. This is not just about people who are deaf in communities. This is about the effect on the entire community, including the people who are
9: hearing in the community. Absolutely. And deaf people that do reside in those communities indicate that other deaf people that have relocated to that community, finding out that there's no services, move elsewhere. It is also a concern with the local deaf community, and it's a concern with the general community that wants to provide services and wants to be diverse and wants to open their community uh, to individuals that uh, have a different way of communicating.
0: Trish, Timothy, it has been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Timothy Chevalier and Trish Lakey. Trish was speaking to me through an interpreter there with the Colorado Commission for the Deaf, Hard of Hearing, and Deaf Blind, The state has committed $1.4 million to improving training and app for and access to qualified interpreters in rural Colorado. You can read about this and other language-related stories in a special series of reports at CPR.org. Our executive producer for Colorado Matters is Carl Bielich, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Alexandra McMahon, and Max Weisick News Fellow Taylor Allen. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. From my colleague Ryan Warner and myself, thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.